Clubhouse. Welcome to another edition of Battle Beyond, Beyond the Movies, the podcast where two movies with similar themes go to battle to find out which one did it best. This is Paul from Pod Clubhouse, and this week I am ecstatic to have on the show a pal that I've been chatting about TV and movies with since Desmond Hume was the constant. Inez Vivar, you are the next contestant on Battle Beyond, Beyond the Movies. that is an intro thanks paul welcome i'm happy to be here i am so glad that you decided to sign on with me we've podcasted before in the past but never quite as free form as as this discussion is is, is hoping to be i know we've been chatting about movies and stuff since 2008 so we've got a great thing going on i'm happy to see this evolution here and i'm ready to battle it out Meet the combatants. Last week's episode with Cops and Robbers is downright playful compared to this week's comparison of the 1990 cinematic version of Margaret Atwood's novel The Handmaid's Tale and the 2006 adaptation of P.D. James' novel Children of Men. Did you have any prior association with these movies, Inez? No. As soon as you gave me my battle assignments, Paul, this was uh, fresh for me. This is exciting. Well, had you watched the show of Handmaid's Tale before? Yeah, I've watched the show and I've read the book. So I did have some background context for Handmaid's Tale, but I'd never seen the movie from 1990. So. It's weird, right? How what is on the page in the book is represented on screen. You can't argue that it's not, right? Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I've never read the P.D. James novel. And this is very interesting to find out, but you're going to have to help me with the director's name because I can't pronounce it without someone telling me. (laughs) Um, Do you know how to say his name? Is it Alfonso Cuaron? That sounds exactly right to me. (laughs) But when he adapted the screenplay, he was more in love with the idea and the story points and continuing to improve the script as he inherited it from another writer. And he wanted the purity of that idea. So he didn't read the novel when he adapted the screenplay. Oh, interesting. But the funny thing is, is that P.D. James loves the movie. (laughs) So I guess it all worked out. Success. It's a fantastic movie. Oh, my God. So I'll run down some of the some of the high points of each movie. Handmaid's Tale came out in 1990, directed by German director Volker Schlerndorf. Uh, he's most well known for having directed a German movie known as The Tin Drum. This was a pretty famous movie from 1979 and really stuck in that area, Europe movies, German movies, that area is where he mostly worked. So The Handmaid's Tale was sort of stepping out for him. For his efforts, his movie garnered a worldwide gross of only $4.9 million. And that's not a lot, even in 1990. No, that's interesting. I had to kind of reframe my mind too, right? Because I'm not super familiar with a lot of like movies from like the early 90s era that are like this serious tone because I was only four years old in 1990. So, right. Right, So more in the uh, Little Mermaid type era of your movie watching. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, yes. And so, <laughs> so just um, so watching this now and realizing that I'm watching a serious tone film from that area was um, something I also kind of had to process and reframe my thoughts and my expectation of the experience. Just because I'm so used to, you know, like the really big, like flashy, high tech kind of stuff now. So that I've seen and I'm a huge fan of the Handmaid's Tale series and that kind of storytelling. So I'm just kind of resetting my expectations on on that era. But I feel like it is very different than a lot of films that I am familiar about from the era. On paper, The Handmaid's Tale should have been kind of a home run because it had the Tin Drum director. People like that movie. It had a guy named Harold Pinter adapted the screenplay from the novel Harold Pinter uh, is a well-known screenwriter and playwright who was actually a Nobel laureate later in his life. So the guy knows how to write is what that means. Stars Oscar winners Robert Duvall and Faye Dunaway. Elizabeth McGovern, who played Moira, would go on to get a nomination later in life. And if you watch Downton Abbey, you know her. And Natasha Richardson played the titular handmaid, renamed Kate in this one. Much like how they picked the name June for the TV show, since the character is never named in the book. Like, I mean, because it's from her point of view, I guess, why would you name yourself? They named her Kate. Yeah, it's a really great cast. I found out that the role had actually almost gone to Sigourney Weaver, but ironically, she dropped out because she was pregnant. Oh, wow. That is a very fun fact. Isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Oh, man. Like, I'm now just like picturing what this would have been like with Sigourney Weaver. I mean, that makes sense. She was such a huge star for those movies in that era. And Mm -hmm. this is such an important role. But I really love Natasha Richardson. And she did a really great job in this. Full of stars and full of, if they weren't stars then, then they went on to become bigger stars later. But not everybody loved what came out. Uh, 32% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, Harold Pinter, the writer, regards the script as something he would later disown, if that's such a thing. What? Because he felt that the final version was so compromised from what he had adapted. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. I also have to think about like what is socially acceptable kind of climate back in the 90s, too. And that's probably why it seems like posts like the Me Too campaign and a lot of those kinds of progressive movements in this way that The Handmaid's Tale's whole storyline seems to be like just more like respected or take it that the theme is is just a little bit more present in what, what's going present, on. Present, right yes. Now. Oh, you read my mind, Paul. I was going to say present. Look at us. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, but and then trying to think about the kind of culture that existed in the United States back in 1990 when this was released. It's just very taboo. Right. Like uh, Vanilla Ice was having a very high time in his life right then. That was the America that we we had right then. Uh, MC Hammer and stuff was kind of a big deal. And that's where our minds were at, largely. You know, it was around the era when the Cold War was ending, you know, so American ideals were feeling like... I don't know. I guess we didn't want to really look quite inward like that, that that the way that this kind of topic was asking audiences to examine, even though the book had only come out a couple years before this. Yeah, for sure. Now, on the other hand, 2006, Children of Men, Alfonso's movie, he also 
had a hand in writing this one after a few other writers came into contact with it. Um, but he's also credited as a screenwriter. This one also did not make a ton of money. $70 million versus a $76 million cost to make it. So oh. that's not terrific in Hollywood talk. That is very interesting. However, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a fantastic movie. This was my first time watching it. I never watched it before. I've, I've seen it. You know, my husband had been telling me to watch it. He's always said that he wanted me to watch it. I've tried before and for whatever reason. I think I had like a baby like back when I was first kind of attempting it. And I just couldn't get into it because I just kept being distracted by that. And then my younger sister, Gabby, uh, she's always been a huge fan of this and telling me I needed to watch it. And so... Thanks to your invite to this really awesome opportunity here at Battle of the Movies, I had to jump on this. Would you be surprised to learn that Alfonso was the first Mexican-born director to win an Oscar? Uh, you know, I might not. I don't, I don't think that I'm really surprised by it. You know, I, I'm a Hispanic, so I'm half Mexican, and I follow a lot of the status quo of where things are. So I am surprised because he is so clearly talented. And he's directed other films that I love, like Y Tu Mama Tambien was like one of those films that just like stuck with me and it's like gutted me. And so I, I was a huge fan of his back then. So from a talent perspective, I am surprised, but also from like a culturally, like how people of color movement in Hollywood, kind of not surprised. And I don't mean to be like a downer in that, <laughs> just kind of keeping it real here. Well, I mean, it was a big deal. It wasn't for this movie. It was for Gravity. But he's been uh, nominated and won twice for Gravity and Roma. I never saw Roma, though. Me neither. Um, I haven't seen Gravity either, I don't think. Much different movie because it is almost all like an action type narrative. Like it's just bad shit just keeps happening to Sandra Bullock one right after the other. And her oh, life yes, is Oh, yes, I have. It yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people know him best, and his highest grossing movie was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah, I saw that. They needed to take Harry toward a darker path than the previous Chris Columbus movies had gone. Mm -hmm. And they achieved that. They yeah, did that. that was. Yeah, that tone was totally achieved there. You know, he has a kind of like a trademark storytelling way in that. It's ultimately hopeful, but it's very hopeless <laughs> before you get there, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like I mentioned, Y Tu Mama Tambien is one that like, it almost like traumatized me a little bit. <laughs> it was such a great film, such an impactful film. The way that the story was told had just a lot of rawness to it. And I, I felt that rawness in Children of Men. Well, this uh, movie, he started to pre-produce after that one, Y Tu Mama. But the producers for Azkaban came and said, would you work this up now? And he said yes. So even though this one was next, he did Harry Potter first and then this one. Oh, I see. Very yeah, cool. they were hot to get on Alfonso's train at that point. Yeah. Um, and it's fun because they're like completely different genres uh, across these little hops. But uh, he still kind of has just such an impact on each thing that he leaves behind. I love his work. The Battleground. 
On my last episode, the Master Detective versus Master Criminal episode featuring Mike from the Geekdom Fancast, when I mentioned this episode's theme, Mike had one demand, that I do it with a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm here to represent the vaginas in this conversation. Come forth. (laughs) All right. Well, given the grim theme... Tying these two movies together, what about them made you want to sign up with me for this chat? Oh, you know, I always have just like a lot of curiosity and think a lot about like what ifs. And so these dystopian genres, they give me this really out of the box perspective on what could be or what something typically looks like. I'm very visual in primary visual learner. And so I think uh, it's one thing for me when I'm reading it and I'm feeling all of the feelings as I'm reading the story on pages, but watching it, I start to connect with it from like me, if that's me in that situation, what does that mean to me? And those things that stick with me. And this topic is really important to me. Um, You know, I am a woman and I've always, I've learned the the history of the progressive like suffrage movement here and, and how I am where I am. So I don't take any of my female heritage for granted at all. I'm so like very grateful to to all of the people that have made this come. So these topics specifically touching on the subject of these is, is women. It just was like kind of like a double peak. So let me like see how I can put on my like activist hat and like, <laughs> you know, the kind of extra like ammo that I need to understand like how I can further like participate in that growth. So these kinds of topics just give me a lot of that interest and I think it does spark like other kinds of hats that I wear in my life. One fun fact about the Children of Men book was that it was opposite in the book that the men were definitely infertile and the women were okay instead of in the movie the women are infertile and the men are okay. I mean that one little change I don't know if it saved the movie per se but it's more like it made the movie important Important, yeah, important and timeless to an extent. The concept of female reproductive rights is a topic, like you just mentioned, we're not quite done settling for some reason. By making the movie about that, then it stays relevant. As a theme, it's not one that you see Hollywood dip into yearly, but it's enough that you, we could have picked a couple other movies and tied them into this theme. This idea that sometime in the future, things go bad and childbirth declines and all of a sudden needs to be regulated and controlled. Is this something you think that people are going to get tired of seeing or or do you think in like in this political climate that we've had for the last several years that we are a people just ripe to explore this concept further? I don't think that this theme is going to run out. I mean, I still participate or I witness current conversations around my own like family planning. There's people that feel the need to let me know that it's wrong of me that I've decided to stop having children. You know, I only have one child, one daughter, and my husband and I decided this is um, right for us, right for our family. And we really don't cast any judgment on anybody else that chooses to extend their family even farther or if people decide to abstain from having children altogether. 
I'm kind of like all about you do you and let me do me. But it does still regularly come up. Strangers will let me know that I am being selfish, that I need to have more children, that there's all these things that could go wrong with my daughter. And then I see them also say the same thing to people who decide that they don't want to have children. I'm always coming across articles about there is a decline in, you know, multi-children family households and what is to blame. I even saw one that was like saying millennials is fault for the decline of children. And I'm like, what? Like, no, that's like money. Money is the problem here, guys. If you give me more money, I probably would be willing to have more children. <laughs> but... I don't think that's true, <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe not anymore. I'm really living my life, the my best life right now with my single daughter. And she loves being an only child. And But yeah, I think this is like active things that are happening in my everyday life. These are comments that I have to deal with with strangers all the time. I don't, I think that if anybody tries to say that this topic is just kind of run its course are people that just don't want to acknowledge that other ways of life are valid. That's why here we are with Handmaid's Tale, you know, in the past four years, you know, and this book was written in the 80s, right? Yes. Um, you know, and then so obviously, like people still care about it. And I feel like when Handmaid's Tale was launched, it was intentionally to be directly aligned with the political climate of that time. Given all that, those are that's a great lead into the fight. The fight. This is where we talk about how these movies represent the themes that they have in common. There's specific plot points and things that they do well or or not <laughs> in some cases to address these themes. Like you're talking about when it comes to reproductive rights, even though in Children of Men there have been no babies for 18 years, if you looked carefully around the various sets around London, especially where there, where there was so much more to see than when they were out in the countryside or whatever, um, you would see signage from the government saying skipping a fertility test was illegal and other little hints mm -hmm. like that, that there was this huge clampdown on women. In the scope of what's going on in Children of Men, nobody's had a baby in 18 years. Are you supposed to come out of the movie theater asking the question, like, is it okay then? Or is it mm -hmm. still not okay? You know, I'm a person of science. If Mother Nature is trying to knock out the human race, just knock us the fuck out and like we just have to deal with it <laughs> you know like we are uh, not bigger than than the earth as a biological organism we're just basically trying to fight what's to come i think that the laws as long as it's been considered by a group of people that is inclusive of fair representation of of, of women or the people right like i don't know like a, a conversation like as long as like it just seems like in both of these scenarios you know <laughs> men and the government just decided this is it and this is what's going to happen and then we just have to like follow it and it's just um it's like that very forceful kind of thing it doesn't feel like a woman is leading the change management here <laughs> <laughs> one thing that they do have in common though is that in both cases if you have the babies it seems like there was a lot of power assigned to babies and that that mm -hmm. makes sense but the way that they were being wielded was very foreign to our point of view here in our time, in our space. The idea that you would have a very few amount of babies that you need 
in order to perpetuate the race and then but you're going to wield them like weapons for your cause rather than a resource for continuing mm -hmm. at the human race you know I think like having a champion piece of it, like in both these cases, makes sense for inspiring people to get on board with your cause. But it just seems like the strategy in both of these is still dehumanizing women and women literally are the creators of life. Like no other human being other than women have the ability to like stitch together biological tissue and create life. And that's um, and both of these films, it's uh, they do a really great job of stripping that significance from the woman and making her into a tool. I think that if a woman was participating in like conversations as like an agent of change, then you could absolutely as a community come up with the way with how do we try to address this in like, you know, that is safe for everybody, fair to everybody. And it's like volunteers or incentivize like, you know, instead of forcing people with like fear, because all of that just adds stress. It's like if you <laughs> want to try to populate like one of the things that they tell you when you're trying to conceive is the mother's body cannot be like stressed like you want to keep it as calm and happy and nurtured and and healthy as possible to increase the probability of a successful insemination and successful pregnancy so that's that's um, pretty much the handmade experience um, <laughs> right? <laughs> right and both of these scenarios is like obviously women are not like involved in leadership levels at all because from a biological standpoint they're causing their own failure of this initiative in both scenarios you have what appears to be a very fascistic uh, regime that takes over in both america it becomes a, a republic known as gilead and in in England, it just seems like they just change all the rules and really tighten up on people, particularly with it, with regard to immigration. That's a large part of 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 the set is the, is there's constantly people being deported, and the whole last section of the movie takes place in a section of England that has been converted into a refugee camp, but used to be apparently a place you could live normally, but now it's a it's just a walled off refugee slum. What about this topic you think makes that slide into fascism just like an automatic, like like these authors are like, well, of course that would happen. I definitely saw that they were intentionally paralleling this to the Holocaust. It felt like it was kind of like walking down to the experience that I saw, like from the Holocaust museums of what all of this population of people who were who were murdered um, went through. And so I, I think that they did that. Um, well, I'm talking about children of men specifically at mm -hmm. this point. I'm, I'm sure that that was intentional to get people to understand like the kind of intensity. I, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder like how much is it that they want us to build empathy for like real life events? Mm. Um, you know, like building as some kind of like subtle education for people so that when somebody says, no, man, it makes me like it gave me totally feels of like what I've learned from about the Holocaust. And then you have this visualization that you start to imagine like real life, what what people were must be feeling. And it might build a little bit of empathy later. That's just kind of like my own side thought train that I probably was having. Well, part of that is like Alfonso in particular, not the other director, but the Alfonso, he um, he wants that 
documentary kind of feel the way that he uses like the handheld cameras that are chasing Theo in between bullets and gunfire and, and debris blowing everywhere. Mm. And it feels like we're right there with him storming the beach or whatever he's trying to do. And that increases that, that engagement or whatever you want to call it, that identification with our, with Theo as our guy trying to get us through there with key and the baby and all that, that style drew me in for sure. Whereas, Mm. Mm. You know, with Handmaid's goodness, that felt a little more clinical <laughs> in comparison. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, but I you think... still got the you still got the same idea, but mm-hmm. you didn't get sort of that drawn in like I'm there in the middle of it with them feeling. Yeah, absolutely. the The cinematography in Children of Men was so addicting. Like once you realize that this is like how they're going to tell this story, you, I don't, I was totally hooked. I thought it was brilliant, and I looked up the cinematographer Emmanuel Lubeski. Um, yeah. yeah, and he also uh, was a cinematographer for Itumama Tambien. So I was like, oh, of course. And then, <laughs> and then also Meet Joe Black and Sleepy Hollow. So I just kind of started thinking about like his kind of style also being integrated here is just kind of like that quietness in terms of like not a lot of like extra musical kind of sounds to be distracted is kind of like sucks you into the sounds of the environment. Mm-hmm. And Children of Men, that just more modern experience was very intense, especially because the actions of the characters themselves, it wasn't like this, like a glorified, like action film, you know, where like somebody gets sh- like one of the people that comes out to be like a big character, just all of a sudden it's just like dies ha! when they get shot with a bullet they just die versus action flicks where it's like they get shot like 10 times but they're still like going and running right. and yeah. tumbling and everything and so it's been a while since i've had that kind of rawness and i love that rawness that raw feeling those are kind of my most like favorite kinds of films are like that and yeah so in handmaid's tale it is dated is probably i i'm just kind of attributed the delivery style to be um, maybe more aligned with how um, storytelling was done in in cinema in the early nineties. I'm not, you know, I don't know. I don't really, I don't know though, right? Like this is not my. Is it's not like it did seem very bounced. Like well, it, if if did flow in a story, but I felt like I find myself in like appreciating the Handmaid's Tale show for giving me fillers in between events because it felt like in Handmaid's Tale it was kind of could jump really quickly and I probably could be a little bit lost if I had not already seen The Handmaid's Tale show that kind of gives me a little bit more context about of Glenn, a little mm-hmm. bit more context around Mora and, and stuff versus like here we only got the perspective of The Handmaid and not much more. But yeah, I don't know. I don't really like... My commentary earlier was purely just like my ignorance of like <laughs> cinema knowledge and cinema styles of that era. This one's quirky yeah. of that era. I'll, 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 I'll let you know. When I came into contact with this, I was in high school and this was just something that was on HBO. And I had HBO in my room and I watched it because occasionally there were boobs because that's how teenage boys brains work. <laughs> you know, I don't mind looking at boobs either. It's okay. Yeah. Well, you know, given the subject matter and the seriousness, especially where we are today and mm-hmm. and then and then my teenage brain in the 90s being like boobs is, is like 
the worst kind of irony, right? <laughs> I totally, okay. Okay, no, that's good for me to know because I honestly, like I'm always asking my husband like random questions where I'm like curious, like what does a teenage boy like think? What did you think about it? Like, as I'm like, I'm just, ne- I grew up with sisters uh, and I, you yes. know, so I'm always like, what is it that like boys think about? What is going through minds at this point? And I can tell like sometimes where he'll bring up those kinds of things. Like I know it's like definitely not the most politically correct and I would never like I would never advocate if I had sons to have like done anything like this but it is what it is this is just what teenage boys go through so I full full empathy (laughs) exactly but that being said the subject matter and the bleak portrayal and the quirk even the quirkiness of the lines the delivery all that it stuck with me to the point where when I saw the book available for audio download, I grabbed that. And when I saw the TV show uh, was in production, I got excited for that. So I've been a Handmaid's Tale fan ever since seeing this movie on HBO back in the mid-90s. And I now know that it is it is not the greatest movie in the universe, but it does hit these themes and it does leave you wondering later on after you're done watching that movie, could it? come to that. Now, this same stuff is being done better in other places, but it was one of the only things kind of asking that those questions at that time. We were still getting a lot of popcorn movies in that era that, mm-hmm. that weren't, weren't trying to approach things like that. It was very hard to watch The Handmaid's Tale film. Obviously, you know, we, we know what happens to The Handmaid's Tale. They are raped. And so I'd kind of been used to not seeing films um, lately where it's like more like suggestive in the scene but they don't actually show the rape in like fullness and I think that I I hadn't really like seen that in a while and I, I am a survivor of sexual assault and sexual abuse and so I knew that it was coming. I knew that it was in the books. I'd seen it in the previous show, but it was still like so incredibly hard to watch. And then they made me watch it again. So they made me watch it twice um, in the movie. And that was really difficult. So it kind of made me, I, I left The Handmaid's Tale feeling more nauseous than I did like Children of Men. Children of Men felt a little bit more like inspiring. And, and they did have a lot of like cringy stress moments, but more of like of other stuff. But like this particularness of, of this Handmaid's Tale, like I like Robert Duvall, but I <laughs> did not, I couldn't even look at him for the rest of the movie. It was hard. Yeah. I mean, if you've, if you've seen him on things where you'll like him, whether he's a cowboy or he's in The Godfather or whatever, you're like, mm-hmm. hey, that's a I, that's an actor I like. And then you see mm-hmm. him in this and you're like, I hate that guy. That's how it was when I was like, ooh, I'm going to watch The Handmaid's Tale. I know that Robert Duvall's in it. I'm excited. I'm a, I, you know, I was a Godfather. I'm a Godfather fan. And, and they had so many like moments where I was like, the camera's right on his fucking face. And I'm like, God fucking damn it. Like, I fucking hate this like so badly. But I also like tend to remember, and maybe this is just because I am a survivor, that I need other people to feel that kind of like discomfort so that they could have built more empathy for women when women come or anybody comes and approaches them about sexual assault and and stuff like that because I remember in college like I was talking to just somebody I just met and he made a comment that said oh all girls have a story like that like this very 
dismissive and belittling and it was very hurtful for me and i was in my early 20s so i decided at that point it, it impacted me on making a decision on not talking about it further and i think it just made things harder for me as i like kept going and i and i remember that i'm not the only one there's millions of girls and millions of children i know that women are not the only ones but i'm just speaking specifically because of the context of this story mm -hmm. As much as I fucking hated it and I wanted to also have my hand on that knife as I got <laughs> his artery in his neck, I thought maybe it'll really drive somebody to realize like somebody could feel this way. I thought Natasha Richardson's reaction during those rape scenes was so like heartbreaking. It was very difficult to watch her. And if it inspired some kind of empathy in people to teach our children better then it's okay. But I could definitely see how that would not be very popular to receive in the early 90s. It was not, for sure. It, it definitely sat for a while before it got picked up again. But maybe it's a lack of those introspective type questions being asked to audiences that, who knows, helped contribute, get us to the place where it becomes one of the most popular TV shows going. Things didn't continue to get better the way we thought they could have. And so now we need to ask these questions because there are decisions being made that a lot of us wish or, or, or look at them and be like, how do we put mm -hmm. things in reverse from where we were? I just slightly disagree that it didn't improve as much as we thought it did. I think really it's more like this stuff has always been bad. And society has been like sweeping it under the rug and keeping it hidden forever and just telling everybody things have gotten better for women or like and just focusing on like the laws and stuff. But mm -hmm. honestly, like the still there's this big culture of silence amongst families when they learn about abuse that's happening within families. And I think that society also supported this culture of silence to be continuously silent about this stuff. And I think that we just thought that it got worse when the Me Too stuff came out. But it just finally is getting a little bit more respect and visibility, finally. But it's always been there and not really being addressed. That actually ties into one of the themes that I detected in both movies, addressed in completely different ways. But this idea of numbness or lack of, mm -hmm. of, of sensation in The Handmaid's Tale, one of the ways they accomplish that is by limiting the color palette. We don't see them do anything like, I don't know, give the handmaids. We actually do. We do see them give the handmaids drugs, which I can assume are, I don't know, maybe vitamins, but also probably downers or behavior type mm -hmm. modification type medications. And through Natasha Richardson's portrayal of Kate or Offred, you often get this sense that she's not fully able to deal with what's happening right in front of her right then. And then you go to, say, children of men. Visually, there's a couple things. Like, say, the moment when Theo is kidnapped by Julian and they have him in that box with the lights coming through the newspaper. That's pretty intense, right? But a lot of the rest of it has, uh, like she describes as he's leaving, that ooh sound is your, is your ear cells dying and never hearing that sound again. You know that ringing in your ears? That ee. That's the sound of the ear cells dying, like their swan song. If you notice, like the soundtrack for the movie has a lot of that ooh sound happening mm -hmm. throughout the rest of it. 
And I think that's indicative of us getting more and more numb as we go, right? Mm. Losing more and more sensation as we exist in this world, absorbing what's happening. You know, the soldiers attacking their own people and or the immigrants or the terrorists storming Bexhill only to find key in the baby. They're willing to upset everything it's not even really a great balance, but it's some kind of balance that the British government has in place. But they're willing to upset all of that to get a hold of the baby and rush in. What you just said about families impressing upon their family members a sense of numbness, it's its one approach, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, lack of sensitivity is another way to look at it with regard to the, these topics. It's almost like the filmmakers are, are addressing that and kind of extrapolating that forward through these different ways. That line kind of stuck with me a little bit as she was saying that. And uh, I'm going to have to go back and kind of experience it again with with that in mind. I really like how you described that because right off the bat, it's just kind of really, really exciting kind of environment. A lot of stuff happening right away. And by the end of it, yeah, we are kind of like used to it. Now it's just about making it to the end. But Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> get to the boat. Get to the boat. <laughs> Did you detect any other th- themes tying them together or or separating them that you wanted to discuss? Mm, the themes that I had written were the, uh, the uh, low fertility, the dystopian kind of government. And uh, yeah, so I think that we covered what I had in mind, but if anything comes up. <laughs> <laughs> the verdict. Well, do we have a clear winner here? For me... It's easy. It's children of men. I give uh, children of men 4.5 baby Diegos. Um, <laughs> this version of The Handmaid's Tale has all the same beats and story as the novel and the first season of the TV show, but ultimately it feels kind of drab and lifeless. I, I have to give it two red veils out of five. I'm probably going to give Handmaid's Tale a three and a half for like impact of the story. It did stick with me. I thought it was a really some really strong performances. I had left with the shock, and usually, if I'm left with a little bit of a shock, that usually means I had a good experience, like with it. I'm aligned with it. I'm knocking off a couple of veils there for the same reasons that you're talking about. That the delivery isn't nearly as sexy as we have seen in other things, and it, I think that that could definitely been why it didn't get nearly as much credit as it probably could have that it should have probably should have gotten i really liked the movie i really did it'd be my first time seeing it and i also tend to kind of (laughs) have a bias against older movies like right off the bat like i think that's just like a millennial like a quick like a, a kind of thing that i do but i was trying really hard to suppress that bias and focus on just what it is and and i thought it was really good and impactful on that point I want to give Children of Men five, was it five baby Diegos? <laughs> five baby Diegos. Is that the max? Is That's that the, the max? max. <laughs> that is as many baby Diegos as you can give it. Yay! <laughs> I wanted to have all of the baby Diegos because the cinematography, man, the scenes of how they delivered those was so fucking fun. Like it was, I know, I know the story is awful. I get it. But the way that they orchestrated, you know, in these single shots that for extended periods of time, like that was just so masterful to me because I had so many details that gave me so much context to the story of what we were experiencing without having to tell me that this is what they're 
they're doing. You know, I didn't have to listen to a conversation between people to get it, to feel it and to empathize with it. And oh, my God, the cast was fantastic. The cast was so, so wonderful. Jasper. Alfonso hates exposition. He wants to put everything up on screen that you need to understand the story. And he would probably love to hear you say that you don't want to hear somebody saying, explaining the whole story, you know, in order to understand what's happening. I love it. You know, um, one of my favorite hobbies that I do is puzzles. I do just brain puzzles all the time. It's my thing. I can't, I'm obsessed. And I love movies that let me do that. Let me kind of like piece things together. It was so raw. The rawness mixed with this like genius cinematography, it was so impactful. And I am mad at myself that I haven't been loving this film since 2006 to present. (laughs) So I'm going to give it all five Baby Diegos. All five. I had to take off a half Baby Diego just for that one scene in Beck's Hill where the fishes just happened to stumble across Theo and Key. Like, what? <laughs> this whole thing? You got what? Come on now. You're right. That does like take, you know, adding a little bit of cheesiness to a film that's been so raw and intense. You're right. It could definitely do that. But I honestly felt like everything else was so masterful that that didn't even matter to me anymore. And it didn't last very long. Just watching that whole last, I don't know, 40 minutes or something where every extra that you encounter is jabbering in their own language, trying to ask for help, plead for help, anything that they can get. It is utterly convincing that they are pleading with you. It's almost like Clive Owen stumbled into something that was actually happened and they just filmed it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it It did feel like that. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly. Those are the details that fucking matter. And they took the time to design these environments and choreograph how we were going to receive this message by far superior delivery than Handmaid's Tale. It's interesting. I mean, the TV show obviously has taken the air out of the room for needing to explore another cinematic version of The Handmaid's Tale. There's no need to do that now. Yeah, I agree. Everything that needs to be done there is being done on the TV show. But I think you'd have to be very cynical or something to watch this Handmaid's Tale, even with its flaws, and not come away without having taken something from it. A question, a concern, a new perspective on these things, these themes that for some reason, when when authors look forward from now, they keep seeing these same things in their in their crystal balls, you know? Things get worse, not better. Governments get tighter, not easier. Mm -hmm. Um, Things for women don't improve. They get worse. And that was a movie that approached that when it wasn't cool to approach that. For sure. Definitely got to give them the points for that. It's been like my whole life um, has been being told like what is expected of me as my role as a woman, as a wife. And I think that I just kind of built like a natural need to rebel against that. So I tend to try to do like what I want just for the sake of seeing what I can get away with because government and everybody's telling me that I'm allowed to do this. But when I start to action it, I start to get criticized by it, by my family members, by friends, by like, you know, society in general, you know, 
if I'm a working mom, I'm I'm not um, being a good 100% mom. If I'm a stay-at-home mom, then I'm like lazy, not doing anything all day. So like, what is it, people? <laughs> so, so I think like the battle about like, and I don't, I don't hear these kinds of conversations and things that are centered around men's lives. So I think that this topic is never going to go out of style, especially now that women are being more emboldened and more empowered to be able to highlight these kinds of injustices that are happening to them. These stories are just going to come back to life, if anything. These are interesting times. We are living through a Chinese curse by living (laughs) in interesting (laughs) times, are we not? Yeah, but this is a really fun pair up and I want to, I just thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this conversation. Well, thanks for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Battle Beyond the Movies and we'll come back for our next one as I tackle a dish best served cold with Inez's, Inez's, (laughs) with Inez's sister, Gabby. We'll be comparing Masterworks featuring Matthew McConaughey and Lindsay Lohan when Gabby and I discuss Sweet Revenge as we take a look at A Time to Kill versus Mean Girls. (laughs) I am so ready to listen to that one. I cannot wait to hear how that conversation goes. If you like this, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Paul V. Daily or at Pod Clubhouse or www.podclubhouse.com. Inez, if, say, a listener wanted to reach out to you, how would they find you? You know, I am one half of a podcast group with uh, Gabby. So right now um, you can find us on Twitter at Aspie underscore anything um, on Twitter. And uh, we're currently a duo um, exploring different views and obstacles in life with our neurodivergent backgrounds. And uh, and we love talking about movies. So you can find (laughs) us on there. Well, thank you again, Inez, for coming on this episode um this is a very young podcast it's a new idea still working out the kinks i hope you'll be back i hope i didn't chase you off once we got to talking i I realized for a second holy crap this is a much more serious conversation than i was ready for (laughs) uh batting down the hatches because we (laughs) are are in the middle of a very serious conversation and i'm glad i was you were the right person to have this conversation with. I I hope I came up to your level, Inez. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. I always enjoy um, hanging out uh, with Pod Clubhouse. So thank you. I'm excited to come back. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.